welcome back to Adhering Apologetics. Super pumped to join us today to have Josh Yen, and we're going to be talking about the Ascension. What's up, Josh? I'm doing fine, thank you. It's over. It's it's night right now in Hong Kong, so it seems like we have we're completely on the other side of the world, like usual. But it's quite good. <laughs> well, I mean, unfortunately, I'm still in Virginia, and you're still in Hong Kong, so I guess we'll always just be on the other side of the world from each yeah. other, at least for now. Um, yeah. So today we're going to be responding to a video by Matthew Hark. Uh, he's a skeptic, atheist, agnostic. Um, who released a video called Why Apologists Don't Talk About the Ascension. So we're going to be talking about the Ascension because that like grabbed my attention. I was like, oh, well, we should talk about it. So Josh, do you have anything you want to say before we get rolling? It was quite an interesting idea because uh, after we did our previous video on a cosmic skeptics discussion about the resurrection, I saw someone in the comments, I think it was Deconverted Man or something like that, said, oh, they should make a response to uh, Matthew Hark's uh, video on the Ascension. I looked at that <laughs> and I'm like, and then you were asking me, oh, do you have any videos you want to respond to? And I was like, wait, there's a comment here and, and uh, Zach's asking me to do a video with him. So I was like, sure, let's talk about the Ascension. So, I mean, it seems like this is quite a asked for topic because as Matthew Hart does seem to suggest, it isn't actually talked about a lot. So I'm very looking forward to talk to about it with you. Yeah, no, I will save the rest of what I'll say for later. I didn't realize the Deconverted Man comment. That's really funny. Um, shout out to Dan. Love Dan. Um, yeah, so if you don't have anything else to say, Josh, we'll get into this video. Sure, sounds good. Let's do it. I do want to say, like, as we get into this, like, Matthew's a really great guy, a lot of respect, all that great stuff. Um, but yeah, and we're using this to critique, like, the ideas, not the person, you know, all these things. Everyone hopefully knows by now, like, we're not in this to try to, like, smite people or something. It's really about the ideas. All right, let's get going. Why don't apologists ever talk about the ascension? I've been pretty passionately engaged in Christian apologetics for almost two decades. Most of that time as a Christian and only in the last few years as a non-believer. But over the years, I've started to notice something about the industry of Christian apologetics about what defenders of the faith do and don't talk about. And there's one subject in particular that when I first started to question my faith, I couldn't help noticing they almost never talk about. I'm referring, of course, to the Ascension. But before we talk about that, it's worth pointing out how surprising this is theologically, especially considering how much apologists love to talk about the resurrection. I mean, the historical case for the resurrection is pretty obviously one of the evangelical industrial complex's biggest exports at least when it wants to present itself as an intellectually robust, evidence-based worldview. There's an entire cottage industry of large books covering every detail of the evidence for the claim that Jesus rose from the dead, from the empty tomb to all the specific appearances to individuals and groups, except, strangely, for the last appearance. Okay, so this is the first part we're going to play here, just to stop. So I think there's a couple of things to think about here. Um, first is, like, Matthew's kind of, it seems like the character... I mean, th this could be wrong, but it seems like to me like he characterizes Christian apologetics as a business, um, which is like, if you want to believe that, like, that's fine. Like, maybe you had some experience or something like that. But at least for me, like, I don't really see this, like, YouTube channel and podcast as a business. Um, not in the slightest. Um, obviously, like, I need to raise funds and whatnot, but, like, I'm not just here to, like, get paid. I could do other things and probably make a lot more money than I do doing this. Um, so, but, I mean, whatever. I just want to focus more on, like, the Ascension stuff. So at least for me, like the goal of Christian apologetics is just to show that the Christian faith is reasonable. So like if the Ascension would like count against the, like the reliability of the gospels or things like that, then of course it's worth talking about. And if it would support it, it's also worth talking about. Um, Cause it does deal uh, at least to some degree with like the resurrection of Jesus. And I do want to say it's interesting because I think he's right in that like apologists don't talk about it. Like I literally just Googled on YouTube, um, like, like 30 minutes before we did this, um, apologetics ascension and i didn't see like a single video so like no one's talking about this um and i don't know if it's gonna be for the reasons matthew kind of brings forward here um because i just haven't seen people like even atheists bring this up and maybe i just haven't like combed the depths of new testament literature but i just haven't seen many people talk about this 
Um, so yeah, that's kind of my preliminary thoughts. I definitely agree with you. And I think that this uh, point of Christian apologetics is a very interesting discussion because I think where you fall or what you define Christian apologetics as would then kind of define or at least kind of fit to, well, what exactly do we mean? Or is Matthew's critique correct or not? Because I think that Matthew's kind of perspective might either be from this kind of industrial perspective, which I'm not really sure if that's correct or not, but or you have this kind of other situation where you might say, oh, the Christian apologist here is to affirm or support everything in the Bible, which at the same time, I wouldn't say necessarily is the goal of the Christian apologetic. I don't necessarily think that, or at least for me, it's not in my job to go through every single point in the Bible and prove historically that every single thing is true, just as I wouldn't go through any other historical source and say, oh, I'm here to prove everything else in that historical source is true either. And I think, as you say, like one part of the Christian apologetics goal is to make Christianity a reasonable, reasonable belief. And I think that is definitely true. That's one part of it. And I think another one is to really strengthen one's walk with Christ. So I think every way we judge these arguments or the actions that apologetics use, arguments it use, has to be viewed in, in, in context of uh, these ideas. Yeah, I think that's super good. I do think it's interesting, like, like, where does the ascension play in, like, the historical context of, like, saying, like, making an argument for the resurrection? He's going to get into, like, Habermas and Craig and these other people that try to do this. And, like, I mean, I think, like, you have to defend, like, the reliability of the Gospels to some degree. So, like, say, like, it, like even if you're using a minimal facts approach, like, if you just have, like, these minimal facts and everything else is myth, well, that's going to be a really good reason to doubt that these um, supposed, like, minimal facts are actually facts. Um, so, like, things like the, if there's, like, a bunch of cases where Matthew's going to try to build the case that the ascension is, like, a serious problem. Um, and if there are a bunch of more of these, then, yeah, we could have a problem here, and maybe this ascension is a part of it. Um, so, yeah, I do think this is an important topic. So, yeah. I definitely agree with you on that one. And I think that the relationship of this minimal facts argument is, is quite an interesting thing because oftentimes we seem to look at the historical argument for the resurrection, at least, purely from a perspective of, well, is this a purely historical argument? I'm not really sure whether that's the thing that we really do when we're raising the historical argument. I mean, yes, in the sense that we are using historical reasoning or historical evidence, but I think that the second part of the historical argument is normally more of a philosophical argument in the sense that you get to a certain number of facts, like Craig, it's like Jesus existed. And then of course they saw the tomb and then, and then they have these kind of six or seven facts and they say, well, the best explanation for these facts is indeed the resurrection. That's more of a philosophical argument. And then you can suggest, well, what actually is the relationship between uh, the two? And I think that by understanding perhaps the idea that, well, maybe we're not really trying to always find, always finding the historical evidence of a certain a claim, then we notice that, well, maybe if we, as long as we defend uh, the resurrection, then that's all we need. Because oftentimes what we do see is that, well, in most historical texts, there's only certain parts of a historical text which have those multiple attestations. And we'll talk about this a bit later, but mm -hmm. there are only certain parts where they have strong reasons to believe in them. And other ones, you just kind of have to take into consideration the context. And I think that mm -hmm. it's important that we really view this kind of historical context in when we're discussing the, in, in, when we're discussing the resurrection and also the ascension as well. Yeah, I think it's tricky, uh, especially like when you're looking at like, cause all these issues are so interconnected, like, um, and we'll see this as you get later into this video, but with like the ascension, like this is very much connected to like other issues with regards to like the reliability of the gospels, like other minimal facts, facts or things like that. Um, that's what makes it tricky, but that's why we're doing this video. So it's worth talking about. Um, yeah. Pulling up the next clip here. One day I'll be able to press play.
the one we read about in Acts 1, where Jesus concludes his time on earth by flying up into the clouds like he's Superman. For all the ink that's been spilled and all the talks that have been given on the resurrection, there's a conspicuous silence on the ascension, which is directly and integrally related to the resurrection. I've combed through several books and listened to dozens of talks by Gary Habermas on his minimal facts argument for the resurrection, and maybe I've just missed it, but I have yet to see or hear him talk about the ascension. Mike Lacona has written one of the most comprehensive investigations of all the relevant evidence in his 700-page book, The Resurrection of Jesus, and yet the ascension doesn't even appear in the index. William Lane Craig, in his 1989 book, Assessing the Evidence for the Historicity of the Resurrection, has a detailed discussion of all the other appearances of the risen Jesus, and yet this is what he says about the ascension. Quote, Luke does refer to the ascension of Jesus in his gospel, and this might be called a resurrection appearance, but an investigation of the ascension is a study all of its own and would not substantially affect the results of our discussion. Therefore, we will not cross the line to include it in this study, unquote. That's a really strange omission. Actually, the only resurrection apologist I know of who directly addresses the ascension without visibly squirming is the great British theologian N.T. Wright in his books, The Resurrection of the Son of God and Surprised by Hope. I might make a video in the future all about Wright's view of the ascension if enough people are interested in that because it's a very interesting and idiosyncratic view. But for this video, I just want to ask the question, why is there such an awkward silence from most apologists on the question of the ascension? Okay, so we have this question, Josh. Do you want to start? I think that one of the things we notice, or at least I, I think um, the first thing I kind of do when I look at the ascension is, I think it's very, it's, it's fine to completely admit that the historical evidence, or at least if we're talking into consideration what we, we mean by historical evidence as multiple attestations and stuff, the historical evidence for the resurrection is, is significantly greater than the historical evidence for the ascension. You're not going to find a similar argument for the ascension as much as you find in the resurrection. And then when we take this into consideration, when we take into consideration, of course, the, the goal of apologetics, and I don't see it as squirming, not, not raising the ascension, is not necessarily got to do with going against the goals of apologetics. If we assume the goals of apologetics being creating a reasonable um, discussion or a reasonable worldview of Christianity, and also uh, creating a powerful a kind of uh, strengthening of one's faith, we realize that just talking about the resurrection can achieve both those two aims. And not talking about the ascension doesn't go against necessarily either of the two aims, because I, I don't necessarily view that um, going, not talking about the ascension or not believing in the ascension is a significant uh, kind of problem to the Christian faith. Of course, it's good to believe in the Gospels, and I'm not saying otherwise, but rather I'm just saying that the, the degree of significance to Christian belief, the resurrection is significantly higher and would have significantly larger impact on a Christian's faith when compared to the ascension. Yeah, um, so I don't comb the depths of like New Testament literature. Like Matthew is much more well-read than me, as you can see by his impressive bookcase, and I have like a window back there. Um, but like, I just haven't seen many people bring up the ascension as like an argument against the historicity of the gospels. So, like I'm just thinking about like the debates I've listened to or like uh, the lectures from like different like or like response videos from different like atheists or agnostics, like people that aren't Christians on the New Testament. And I just haven't seen this brought up. So at least for me, like this is why I actually didn't realize this was like an argument against like the historicity of like the New Testament until like a few weeks ago or maybe a few months ago now when I came across this video because I just hadn't seen many people talk about this. And so maybe it's a similar situation for people like Habermas or Craig or whatnot, but like, I'm not here to defend them. <laughs> like I'm not a Craig or Habermas apologist. I'm just really interested in what Matthew's arguments are, which is what we're going to get to very soon. So, yeah. I definitely agree with you on that point. And I think that it's very interesting, especially the idea of, well, well, about a kind of New Testament literature and especially how you referred to 
kind of, we're not here to defend Craig and Habermas. I completely agree with that because I think that every single apologist has their own goal in apologetics. Craig has his own approach and his own goal. Habermas might have his own approach and his own goal. And we have to take into consideration how they all kind of play a part in this, in this larger kind of discussion about the faith and how this larger discussion or this larger community strengthens one's faith and walk with Christ. Yeah. I do want to say like, so suppose that like in like maybe like non-Christian New Testament literature, there's a lot of talk about like the Ascension being like a mark against like the historicity of the Gospels. If that's like a common theme and seen in like different works of like Ehrman or Allison or um, like Garrett Ludeman, like these people and like none of the like evangelicals respond to that. Well, then that would be a mark against the resurrection. I just don't really know the state of like New Testament studies. Um, but I mean, we're just going to deal with Matthew in this video here and just see uh, where the ch chips lay. All right, here we go. We got to figure out this sinking view of like getting the clip played at the right time because I'm really struggling here. Okay, here we go. Now, I don't think it's because there's some deliberate conspiracy of silence. I don't think it's intentional at all. Honestly, I think it just comes down to good old fashioned confirmation bias. I think apologists don't talk about the ascension because as central and important as it is to the gospel theologically, from the perspective of the modern historian and from the perspective of modern cosmology, it's just really, really embarrassing. Okay, so do you have anything else you want to say, Josh, before we get into like the three marks that um, Matthew has is kind of like points against the ascension, hurting like the case for the New Testament's reliability? Well, I think that what we soon notice is quite a difference between what the atheist views of the Christian apologists and what the Christian apologists views of their own purpose. Because what I think Matthew's kind of argument here about kind of why is there this silence is kind of him suggesting that the Christian apologist has to defend every single claim in the Bible with 100% historical certainty. And, and please correct me if I'm wrong, if that's not what he's trying to say. But it seems that there's an implicit suggestion within his argument or his critique here that there is a certain standard where a Christian has to support almost everything in the Bible. I don't necessarily think that that is a very reasonable uh, standard to have, at least when we're looking at this historically, since I am assuming he is using a historical argument. If we look at any um, historical work, no one goes through the entire historical work and asks them for 100% certainty of histor historical evidence, especially all in, in like firsthand resources or firsthand sources or secondhand sources. They, no one ever goes through and says, well, what are your support for every single sentence you make? That's just a completely... I think a bit of a extreme or unreasonable standard to hold any any uh, historical literature or historical source at, and it's just unreasonable. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to come down to like like what the ascension is and like the meaning of it. So yeah, I if I think that like it's gonna be super important like thinking about like and this is like Matthew's arguments that we're about to get into are addressed against maybe like more like a minimal fact style approach. Because um, if you're defending, like, say, like a robust, like, reliability, the reliability of the Gospels, they may not be as big of problems as um, Matthew might suggest. Uh, but, yeah, I don't really have anything else to add here before we get into his three different kind of accounts of things. So, yeah, that's good stuff, Josh. And it's embarrassing for a few reasons. Looking at the Ascension historically, it just doesn't hold up very well. For one thing, it doesn't carry the crucial indices of early or multiple attestation. While there seems to be a clear belief throughout the New Testament that Jesus ascended to heaven in fulfillment of Psalm 110, Luke is actually the only gospel writer, the only writer in the New Testament at all, who gives us an actual account of this event. And that account was written at least half a century after the fact. This suggests just by itself that Luke might be historicizing or putting into narrative form something the earliest Christians believe for, well, much less historical reasons. Okay, so this is his first kind of um, argument where he, there's problems with the ascension. So I'll leave it to you, Josh, to start off. Well, I, 
I don't want to sound very harsh here, but I really think that what he illustrates so well is just the unreasonable standard which atheists use to judge the Bible historically. Like, we are using this in a purely historical case and a historical standpoint. We aren't using this in in a mythological or a theological standpoint, or whatever you want to call that. And, and the idea that some a source is bad just because it was it didn't have multiple attestation or it was written fa- uh, like half a century after the, the actual event is, is nowhere seen in history. Yes, it might support or make this test stronger. But the fact that it lacks these critiques doesn't make it a weaker source at all. And I just would like to uh, give you some examples just to show why, uh, why I'm saying it makes sense uh, in this situation. First of all, no one looks at historical sources and asks for multiple attestations for everything. Most historical sources throughout history about key events do not have multiple attestations. And when they do have multiple attestations, those attestations or these multiple attestations apart from it are written ages after the text or or you only find bits and pieces of the information. For example, uh, a historian might see a knife in this kind of area in the valley and then see another kind of bow in the valley. They put those two together and know that this is a fighting tribe and it is a hunting tribe. These don't have multiple attestations, but looking at the knife and the 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 boat, you have a general idea about what the tribe was and you can form a general kind of a historical understanding of the situation. And now to the part where there's an idea of having half a century written after and somehow that disproves or makes it a weaker historical case. This is plainly absurd and I'm not using absurd in any mean way possible. I, I have the best regards towards um, towards Matthew, but, but I generally think that he hasn't read enough historical literature about the Punic War, which is um, um, a history kind of situation that most people in the world accept. Most atheists would say the Punic War existed. But let's look at the sources for the Punic War. All the major sources of the Punic War were written at least 70 years after it started. The major source was born 50 years after the Punic War started. So actually, it's not just Luke wrote it 50 years after, and that's a time frame. You have the Punic War, one of the most accepted wars in Roman history, the first source written for it was born the time Luke wrote it, which means surely he couldn't have written when he was a baby. That means it goes even further back to at least 70 years. And what are the multiple attestations for the Punic War? Well, what you do see is that Appian, one of those other multiple attestations, was born 250 years after the war. Plutarch was born 200 years after the war. And Livy was born 600 years after the war. So surely if you're using that standpoint to judge any historical source, you're going to have to disregard most of the historical sources in history, and it just doesn't seem to be a very strong historical argument by anyone's standards, apart from the atheists, or at least Matthews in this situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I also wonder, like, so I know Matthew, like, he's a super smart guy. He's well-versed in, like, all this New Testament stuff. So I'm sure, like, he has to, like, I'm sure he knows, like, the points you're making, Josh, um, which is, like, surprising, like, like, the like bringing up the, like, far-removed thing. I was, like, kind of, like, you know, like, we we're talking about ancient history here, so I don't really think that's a very um, strong point because of the point you bring up here, Josh, with, like, the Punic Wars. You can talk about, like, biographies of Alexander the Great. Um, there's all kinds of examples of these um, people or events that happen, and there's no, like, writings that we have of them until much, much later, much later than Luke wrote, um, things like that. So I think, at least for me, like, a lot of this comes down to, like, the reliability of the Gospels. So say, like, Luke wasn't historically reliable, well, then – maybe Matthew has a point here. It's like, well, Luke's just like adding things at will. But if we do, can make like a case for like the reliability of the gospel of Luke, well, then it seems like, I don't, I just don't see the problem of him adding an event that isn't multiply attested. So to me, it comes down to like, is Luke historically reliable, which would be a lot more work and time than we have here. So that's a big question here. So I don't think just like this one single thing that isn't attested would be like 
um, like a serious mark against like the reliability of Luke. Um, so there's that. And then I'm not sure that Luke is the only place in the New Testament where we have the ascension. So like John 20, 17 um, says that Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father to, God, to my God and your God. So it seems like in John 20, 17, you might have an allusion to the ascension. I also just thought about this. Um, Paul has this vision of, or not vision, but he, he experiences the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. And it seems like at least some degree, when I think about Paul's account, it seems like he's like seeing Jesus from like heaven or coming down from the clouds or something, which seems to at least imply some sort of ascension. So I'm not saying that like either of these things are like the ciphers of feeders and Matthew's like totally debunked or whatnot. So I don't think I'm we're about that kind of like thing. Um, but I do think these are things where I'm like questioning, like, I don't know if this is true that um, Luke is the only place where we have the Luke Acts is the only place where we have the ascension. So, and we can talk about like different evidences. Like I had in my notes, like the names that Richard Bachman brings up to show like that, like Luke Acts is historically reliable, but I mean, we don't want to get, I don't feel like getting into that because that's a lot more than we have um, that's relevant for today's discussion. I just say that like the multiple assertion problem really comes down to like, is Luke historically reliable or not? I think your idea about his, Luke being historically reliable actually does tie in quite well with uh, Matthew's entire idea because I think what Matthew tries to say is somewhat along the lines of, well, you guys are talking a lot about the resurrection, but you're not talking much about the ascension. But I think that by talking about the resurrection and assuming in this ideal world where we have proved 100% for certain that the resurrection did exist, we would say Luke was quite a reliable source because, well, I mean, surely a reliable source would be able to predict one of the most un unprobable event that let's just assume Hume's argument is very powerful, that the miracle is the absolutely most improbable event ever, but we know that the resurrection occurred. Now, if you have a source which was able to record accurately one of the most improbable events in history, that reliability of that source would increase significantly. And in a similar vein, you would seem to suggest that, well, by de demonstrating the reliability of the resurrection, you would implicitly in assume or lead to a very, very strong case about the reliability of everything else within the Gospels. So I think that actually the fact that Matthew focuses on the resurrection actually does nothing but weaken his own case that the ascension is unreliable because the strength of the resurrection would have implicit value towards the the I can't speak anymore, the, the <laughs> truth of the ascension. Yeah, no, that's great stuff. Um, let's pull up this next clip. It's also embarrassing to the historian, ironically, because it doesn't pass the criteria of embarrassment. It just looks suspiciously convenient. A lot like the Mormon story about Joseph Smith returning the golden plate to the angel Moroni after translating the Book of Mormon, Luke's narrative of the Ascension looks a lot like an ad hoc explanation for why the appearances of the risen Jesus ceased with the apostles. It's easy to see how a story like that could have helped reduce the dissonance caused by Jesus's continued absence after the initial flurry of excitement following Easter. But okay, what do you think here with regards to the criterion of embarrassment? Well, I think that the cr criterion of embarrassment is kind of like a multiple attestation situation. It is not necessary for you to uh, have e to tick every box in order for it to be a reasonable source, because I don't think any historian ever goes through every historical source he has in front of him with a checklist, something like this on his hand, and it goes like tick, 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 tick. I've, I've ticked the criterion of embarrassment. I've ticked the multiple attestation, go through absolutely everything and say, ah, now this is a good source. I think what a, a good response to this would be saying, well, he's raising the hypothesis that Luke just made it up out of convenience. 
Now, if that's the case, well, what's evidence for that idea? Because I think that a very big problem we see with atheist discussions around the resurrection and historicity of the Bible is that they're very, very good at raising counter-hypothesis, but they've done absolutely nothing to prove the counter-hypothesis. Because it's one thing just saying, I have a counter-hypothesis, and it's another thing demonstrating that that counter-hypothesis is actually true. For example, if someone said, oh, the Americans landed on the moon first, and then someone says, in response, the Chinese landed on the moon first. You might say, well, yes, that's a counter-hypothesis, but you can't just raise the Chinese landed on the moon first and then assume that the entire claim that the Americans landed on the moon first is false. You have to provide evidence for that belief. And in the same way, I would like to see Matthew provide evidence for the hypothesis that Luke made it up. And if he hasn't provided any of those evidence, then that clearly is not a good hypothesis, especially if you use his own criteria of historical analysis, like multiple attestation, or um, historical kind of time after the time the hypothesis came up, I would love to see him try to me measure that hypothesis up against his own standards and see how well that stands. I'm generally saying that in the nicest way possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think about this, like for me again, this is probably gonna come close to just like, is Luke like historically reliable or not, or Luke acts. Um, but I wonder, it's like given like, let's just look at the data of like Luke recording the Ascension. So let's say on like the hypothesis of the resurrection, um, this seems pretty likely that like the ascension would happen because like if we believe that the gospels are reliable and that Jesus actually rose from the dead, um, without the ascension, like would Jesus just still be on earth today? Like that seems kind of like to go against the mission of Christ where um, he saves the world and we bring his kingdom onto earth. So it seems like the ascension would kind of need to be like expected or happen, like given um, Christian theism or something. And then like, I think he alludes later in this video to like some sort of like hallucination or did maybe did earlier where like, um, maybe like the like disciples hallucinated and then they needed some sort of explanation for like why the experience has stopped. So it's like, Luke's like, hey, let's just throw this ascension in here. Um, okay, well maybe you have a potential explanation for like the ascension, but like it'd have to be like a better explanation for some other reason because it seems like at least like these two like, competing hypotheses of the resurrection and like hallucinations to explain it. And then we have to look at other explanatory virtues like simplicity or like um, data like is like Luke historically reliable or things like that to really kind of um, figure out which one has the edge. So I just don't see like how this would count against Christian theism because I think the ascension is expected if the resurrection happened. So, yeah. I definitely agree with you. And I think that a very interesting thing, or at least perhaps maybe another interpretation uh, to um, kind of use the principle of charity to just perhaps present the strongest idea of his view is to suggest that the ascension, his entire argument, is purely there as an illustration or a specific form of Hume's argument against miracles. Just say, well, yes, mm -hmm. the Bible isn't accurate because it records miracles. Here's an example of a miracle that is the ascension. And maybe under that view, perhaps his argument is a bit stronger than the view we've been interpreting it now, because perhaps if he's viewing it as it is improbable because it's a miracle instead of it is improbable because it's historically improbable, then I think that that actually strengthens the view that he is indeed raising. Though I do mm -hmm. think that any, and I don't think that kind of, um, kind of we have the time to go over this kind of Hume's argument against miracles, but, but I'm sure that um, this perhaps could be just another interpretation or something to think about if we're looking at Matthew's view, just to just perhaps just throw out the strongest formulation of his argument. Yeah, I think that's great. And if there's like a rebuttal to this rebuttal or discussion or whatever, maybe he'd like employ Hume's argument against miracles or something. Um, but for the sake of this debate, or not debate, but this response, I think we're going to not address that. But probably the most embarrassing aspect of the Ascension is how obviously mythological it is. Because when we read Luke's narrative without any harmonistic or concordist agenda, it seems like it uncritically reflects the three-tiered universe of ancient Near Eastern cosmology. That is the view that 
heaven is literally above our heads and the underworld is literally below our feet. This was the accepted view of the cosmos throughout the ancient Near East. And it's the view of the Old Testament traditions that Luke is drawing on, such as the ascension of Elijah in 2 Kings 2. When Jesus goes to heaven in Act 1, Luke doesn't picture him just disappearing into another dimension like Narnia, no matter how much N.T. Wright or William Lane Craig wish he had. Rather, we see him ascending up into the clouds because for Luke, heaven is literally up there above the circle of the earth. In fact, this was one of the foundational points behind Rudolf Bultmann's whole project of demythologizing the New Testament. As he says in the opening lines of his 1941 manifesto, New Testament and Mythology, quote, the cosmology of the New Testament is essentially mythical in character. The world is viewed as a three-storied structure with the earth in the center, the heaven above, and the underworld beneath. This then is the mythical view of the world that the New Testament presupposes when it presents the event of redemption, which is the subject of its preaching, unquote. You see, Boltman recognized that the New Testament is so filled with mythology, like this three-story universe that is so foreign to our understanding of reality today, that the modern Christian can't accept it as it comes, but has to demythologize it. And so that's what Boltman tried to do. Okay, so lots of stuff here to talk about. Um, I'll leave it to you, Josh. Well, I think one of the first things we can discuss is that what we notice here is that the ascension into heaven is the most obvious way that any deity would have shown or disappeared into the sky. Because just take into consideration how we praise or sing praises in church. We have some people like to raise both of their palms towards the sky. Why do they do that? It's not because they necessarily believe that God is literally standing above them and looking down on top and just say, oh, you're, I'm receiving your blessings from God now who's above me. That's because we, we psychologically analyze or we, we psychologically connect heights with awe and wonder. And the same way, when we look at a tall mountain, if, you go, if you've ever been to Everest, you'll see, you look at the tall mountain, you're like, wow, that's an absolutely wonderful thing. You, you don't necessarily look at, uh, kind of look down into a small pit in the ground and say, oh, that goes very deep. Now I, I feel very odd. And maybe you do sometimes, maybe the Grand Canyon is an example, but you could suggest the canyon is really high and the ground's low and, and from a kind of a different perspective. But, but I think that what you notice is that, well, sometimes this, the symbol or what God tries to do the, the point of the miracle is not necessarily to prove scientifically anything, but rather the point of the miracle is to strengthen one's faith. And by ascending into heaven, that's the best representation of our understanding and our relationship with God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are good points, Josh. And it's funny because like, it seems like in Matthew's mind, this is the strongest point where the ascension is going to count against like the resurrection. But to me, this is actually like the weakest point. Um, Cause I just don't see why this is a problem. Like, it seems like just like this is an effective way to communicate that Jesus had returned to heaven and wouldn't come back until the second coming. Um, this like, so I, like, I don't really have a problem with granting like that, like Luke or whoever wrote Luke Acts, um, grant like believed in this like three tier cosmology thing. I just don't see this as a problem because it's an effective way to communicate it. Like, I feel like it'd, it'd be like even weirder if like in like Luke Acts, there's like this like little like footnote or something with like contemporary astrophysics to try to explain like, like the dynamics of like where heaven is or something like this. So it just seems like to me, like, this is just the simpler way of doing things and an effective way to communicate that Jesus returned to heaven. And it's just God explaining his truth through like a certain culture that believes certain things. Um, so yeah, I just don't see this as a problem. I completely agree with you on that point. And I, I, I definitely think that it's kind of like me telling my cousin and asking my cousin, what's the smallest thing in my pencil case? And she's like, oh, it's the eraser because my eraser, I've used it a lot. So it's really small. And then... Mm -hmm. And, and then in response to her, I say, no, that's wrong. It's not the razor. Oh, it's these tiny quarks which are coming in and out of <laughs> out of this a quantum substructure in front of her. And she'll be like, what on earth are you talking about? And, mm -hmm. and I think talking about heaven would be the same way as me talking about quantum substructure to my three-year-old mm -hmm. cousin. So I don't necessarily think that it is as big a problem as Matthew thinks it is. 
I think so. Like Ben Stanhope talks about this view with regards to like Genesis one, where there's a similar view um, in his book, Misunderstanding Genesis. And like even Michael Heiser, I think has brought this up talking about um, and like, the, I think these, both of these scholars be willing to grant, like, this is what the like writers of like the new Testament, old Testament believed. Um, but like, could you imagine like Heiser like brings this example, like, could you imagine trying to explain like evolutionary theory to like a second temple Jew? And it's like, no, and it's not because they're like dumb or anything. It's just like, they just had a different view of things that was very different. Like, um, yeah, it'd just be very, very different. And like, why would God have to like, or want to explain um, this completely different way of thinking about things um, to these people that are in a different cultural context. And I think our context really matters when we're looking at the Ascension. I definitely agree with you on that. Awesome. We have our last little clip here that we will play. But this presents a much bigger problem for more traditional Christians, Christians who want to hold on to the early church's belief that God literally raised Jesus from the dead. Because you can't discard the ascension without calling the resurrection itself into question. In the traditional Christian story, the death, resurrection, ascension, and the second coming of Jesus all fit together in a very clear sequence, each one implying the others. And so you can't take one of them out of the sequence without calling the rest of the sequence into question. And this, I think, is why apologists prefer to simply not talk about it. They're just doing what we all tend to do, counting the hits and ignoring the misses. And by all accounts, the ascension is a pretty big miss. Why don't apologists? Oh, no, I restarted the video. Um, what a poetic end. Like, Indeed. really shout out to Matthew here for, like, it's, like, it's a lot of hits and there's some misses. And I forget what he said already. But, like, big shout out. It's very poetic. Um, yeah, I think I should start yeah. writing sonnets at the end of my videos in order to gain more subscribers like him. I think that <laughs> might hopefully boost my subscriber count a bit more. But, <laughs> but I think I think uh, just to kind of respond to his final point, I think that Matthew kind of emphasizes the connection between the two a bit too much in some sense that if you dismiss the ascension, then in some ways the resurrection is also doubt. And I do agree with that if you're viewing this from, um, okay, if the ascension is false, it may be the reliability of of Luke um, becomes a bit worse. But at the same time, if you're just looking at this from a philosophical perspective, it doesn't seem that the relationship or the occurrence of the ascension should have any uh, philosophical implication to the occurrence of the resurrection. Why? It's because ascension is in the future. Well, if you look at the time frame, and it's after the event of the resurrection, that means the resurrection could have occurred without the future existing at all, unless you're a B theory of, of time, which suggests that the time, all time exists at the same time, which I don't necessarily think is the case. And and just to illustrate this a bit better, maybe it's like kind of school schedule. Me going to school and me having my math lesson is is interlinked in the sense that if I don't go to school, I can't have my math lesson. However, at the same time, me going to school is completely independent from my math lesson. While they're both in the same chain of events and they're necessarily for, necessary for each other to occur, if I did turn up to school, it doesn't follow logically that me I, that I I had to have my math lesson in a similar way. If I didn't have my math lesson, it's not reasonable for you then to conclude that I didn't go to school because it doesn't have a direct kind of relationship here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't really have too much to add here, but I mean, obviously like if we're right and the Ascension like isn't as big of a problem as Matthew suggests, then like we're building a pretty robust case for the resurrection. And if he's right, then obviously like we have a lot more work to do. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of great stuff here. And yeah, I really appreciate Matthew's take on things. And obviously, like we disagree, but hopefully like um, Matthew and Josh and everyone listening and me can all disagree. Like we're just in pursuit of truth. And hopefully this is like edifying in your own intellectual journey and trying to like find truth or things like that. Um, so Josh, do you have any kind of like last thoughts or things you want to say before we wrap up here? No, I think it's a very interesting discussion that we've had. I, I appreciate you inviting me here again. It's, it's something that I really want to discuss. It's something which was on my mind a lot. So 
thanks a lot for having me. It's always a pleasure having these discussions with you, Zach. Yeah, it was super fun. And I'm glad you were on and I'm sure you'll be on again. And who knows what we'll be doing next time because <laughs> we've been around the block doing all kinds of stuff. And it's so much fun to think about these things. And yeah, really grateful for Matthew to help me think about the Ascension more. It's really helped me grow. And yeah, great stuff. So thank you everyone who tuned in and Kelvin and Wesley and probably Skinny Man and everyone else. We're so grateful for you and your time. If you're new here, I always encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, all that fun stuff. And if you enjoy our content and value it, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash so projects or become a YouTube member. Um, press the join button on your way out for as little as like a dollar a month. So super grateful for everyone's support that makes the show possible. And yeah, one last time, Josh, thank you again for coming on. Uh, Always a pleasure and love that Supreme shirt, my guy. <laughs> Thanks a lot. And thank you, everyone. God bless.